On this episode of Business Interrupted, you need to peel apart your supply chain all the way down to the core and say, okay, where do I get my stuff? What is the risk in every supplier? We have to take the time. We have to invest because there's a huge difference between cost and price. And we have to invest in understanding where everything is coming from and how it gets to us and how it's put together and who is doing the put together. Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellon Solutions, we're hearing from the world's best leaders as they get into specific situations and topics, providing insights, advice, lessons learned, and resources so you can be ready for when business is interrupted. I'm your host, Brian Zawada, for this scenario's episode. How well do you understand your supply chain, and do you know the risks to every third party that you depend upon? As we continue our discussion on the resilience movement, we're diving deeper into its impact on supply chain and business continuity. On this episode, David Landsman, Senior Vice President and Head of Global Operations at JLL Technologies, joins me to discuss. David is a global leader in the field with nearly 20 years of experience building supply chain marketplaces in multiple industries giving him very unique insights. To start things off, let's get David's thoughts on the biggest changes he's seen throughout his career. Well, what's changed is everybody's saying, well, we're going to have to do continuity planning. and We're going to have to do resilience planning. And now it's kind of too late. And that happens every so often. You know, it happened after the tsunami um, in Japan where everybody's like, oh, supply chain resilience and continuity planning. It's important. And now everybody's, you know, suffering the outcome and the consequences of not being prepared or not understanding what their contingencies are. And this is a huge, huge problem because it's something that, that most people don't understand. I'll give you a perfect example. At the beginning of the pandemic last year, the shipping from Asia to Western Canada dropped to almost zero. Shipping crashed completely. Well, Western Canadian pea farmers rely on the empty containers from inbound Asian shipping to move their peas out of Canada. So here's a supply chain contingency that absolutely no one is thinking about. Okay. And the fact that the amount of containers that were available dropped to basically none meant that these pea farmers in Western Canada could not get their goods mainly south of the border into the United States. So from about March until about June of last year, you couldn't really get peas in the supermarket, which is, I guess, a problem for it's some a problem people. if you like peas. <laughs> yeah, it's a problem if you like peas or if it's a problem if you make pot pies or if it's, it's a problem if you have a mixed vegetable, uh, you know, uh, component to your, to your product line. So I seriously doubt that the, the pea farmers had ever even looked into a contingency to, to move their products down south. So it's understanding what the true contingencies are. You know, people say, oh, what keeps you up at night? Well, the, the lack of shipping containers available due to a global pandemic probably wouldn't have even made the list. When people thought of supply chain continuity or supply chain risk or third-party risk, whatever they wanted to call it, it often looked like a questionnaire sent to a vendor, fill this out and tell me how you're doing. It also sometimes involved things like, hey, are we single-threaded on a specific 
material or some component, but it was pretty surface level, wouldn't you think? It definitely, it definitely was surface level. Most companies don't use a cross-functional team when measuring supply chain risk, and everybody has to come to the table. You need finance to come to the table because people think about supply chain risk, and sometimes they ignore the supplier risk. Financial solvency, for example. Can my supplier withstand financial pressure of some kind? That's a huge part of supply chain resiliency and supply chain continuity planning. Are my suppliers financially healthy? Are my strategic suppliers very healthy? That's a, a key question that many people, you know, don't ask. And that's, uh, you know, one of the key components to supply chain resiliency and risk mitigation planning has to do with understanding the holistic health of the supply chain and not just the micro health. You mentioned kind of the, that cross-functional team. Let's unpack that for just a moment because I think that's a key strategy. One that I think of all the time is R&D. You know, they're constantly qualifying third parties or they're innovating their products, but maybe not thinking about how specialized or how difficult it is to source something that goes into that product. To me, that's, would you agree that that's part of the cross-functional team you're thinking about? Absolutely. Almost everyone needs a seat at the supply chain resiliency table, whether it's engineering or innovation or R&D or however you classify that. Then there's production. Okay, there's marketing for crisis management messaging. Should you suffer a supply chain disruption that's going to prevent the delivery of your hot um, exercise cycle like Peloton that suffered a massive, massive disruption um, and an inability to deliver on their orders? And if marketing wasn't at the table and prepared with crisis messaging, then maybe they wouldn't have survived it. Maybe they would have, right? But the, the fact is that it was critical for marketing to be involved in those discussions. Finance, of course. What does this do to our cash flow? Do we need to take on inventory? What's our cost to capital there, right? If we take on inventory to mitigate the risk, do we take a strategic stake in one of our critical suppliers and have more positive control over production for our key component? And then, of course, during the innovation cycle. And this is just procurement 101 and not even supply chain resiliency. But one of the things that they teach you on your first day at procurement school is, hey, you know what? Most of the cost savings, most of the sourcing cost savings is done pre-production. If you're trying to drive costs out of the supply chain post-production, you've kind of lost already. It's not that it's impossible, but it means that you're thinking late in the game instead of early in the game. You know, another part of that cross-functional team, and it's probably implied with, you know, talking about supply chain, is all the learnings. And you talked about this with shipping containers, is the concept of not just transportation and logistics, but the strategy you're using to move materials, whether raw materials to you or finished product to the customer. What's new there? What's, what's the emerging thinking there now that we've had some pretty catastrophic experiences over the last year, year and a half? The current thinking is it's a little too late if you weren't already thinking about it. And what, what happens is this cascades all the way down to the consumer because we are seeing incredible price pressure on what? Used car pricing, new car production and pricing going through the roof. Okay. And we're about to witness an enormous catastrophe when it comes to the availability of lithium. Lithium goes into the batteries that power our cell phones, they power our laptops, they power an enormous amount of the electronics that we take for granted every single day. And it's not going to be available. 
or it's not going to be as widely available as it is now, or prices are going to go through the roof. So the cell phone that costs $1,000 now, is it going to cost $2,000 next year? It might. So if you're looking to upgrade or replace, this is the time. Like I am going phone shopping this weekend because I've been carrying the same phone for five years. And it's likely that it's time because I might not be able to get one, the one I want, or the price might go, you know, double or even go, go up. And this has an, you know, a long-term cascading impact on, you know, uh, underserved communities. When you think about what it means, you know, for a lot of the third world that only has the ability to access the internet through their mobile phones, is the pandemic now already disenfranchising these people from food, medical care, and things like that? Is it now going to completely cut them off from access to information? So, you, you know, there's multiple facets to a variety of supply chains that are impacting everyone kind of across this phase of the pandemic. One of the changes that I've been witnessing and have been on kind of the front lines of in talking to people was back to your point about pre-production supply chain costs. I'm going to go ahead and move sourcing to something somewhere that is much more lower cost, which of course exposes even greater the, the logistical transportation port shipping container issue that many people are talking about that we've already been talking about. Are you starting to see trends towards geographic proximity of suppliers as a key consideration, or or do you see that as just kind of a, a short-term reaction to something that people should have been thinking about for a long time? It's always a short-term reaction, right? It's always a short-term reaction, right? The phrase that you hear is, well, we really have to get serious about moving production closer to markets of consumption. That is a cliche in some form or another in the supply chain space right now. And when, you, when you're in a crisis or you're coming out of a crisis or you're planning for a crisis or whatever, that always becomes part of the discussion. But, you know, even if we said, using the United States as an example, if we wanted to repatriate, you know, as much manufacturing as was reasonably possible to the United States right now, we couldn't do it because there's between 400 and 650,000 primary manufacturing jobs in the United States that are open right now that we don't have the skilled labor to fill. So we basically have to train a generation of workers to be able to operate, you know, CNC production machines, or you and I were talking about heavy stamping, you know, and the ability to make car parts and things like that. We just don't have the capabilities in America taken, uh, and this goes to the way that we approach education. Everybody has to go to college. Trade school is no longer a thing. You know what? You can make a great living as an aerospace machinist, a great living. You can make a great living if you're certified to work in that type of automotive manufacturing facility. There's great money to be made for, for young people kind of entering the space. So, you know, we have to kind of change our holistic messaging that, hey, manufacturing is important because even if we wanted to pivot everything back to the United States, there's just no one to fill the jobs. I think you correctly pointed out that there are many, many organizations suffering due to a lack of preparedness questionnaires or just thinking about the supplier is not good enough. You have to look introspectively. You've got to look at the entire system of movement of products and services. But let's just say, let's, let's jump ahead a year from now. Let's just assume the dust has settled. We're now in, everything's stabilized. We're not putting out fires every five minutes, so to speak. If you and I were both joining a, a, an organization and they called upon us to help advise them on really thinking about supply chain risk, third-party risk, where do you start? What's, what's your advice? 
you start with an honest conversation with every part of your business. I can give you an example about removing slavery from the supply chain, but it's really a more, it's a deeper example about how you have to think about your supply chain as a holistic part, maybe the veins of your business. The life's, you know, it carries the life's blood, your products to market. Well, Ford, and this is probably 2007, right? Ford realized that some of the iron ore that went into the steel and that produced their cars and trucks was being mined by slave labor in Brazil. And they were like, no, we're not having any part of this. So they mapped their supply chain seven layers deep. Okay. They took the expense. They took the time. They took the intention. And they said, hey, we're going to map our supply chain to the nth degree. So we know where every bit of material that goes into our products comes from. Well, if you take a slightly different, right, there's brand risk, there's existential risk there, there's, you know, uh, corporate social responsibility and, and all the things that go into that. Let's take it a, a step above that and think about the, the holistic supply chain as it comes to the, to the company that you're working for. You need to peel apart your supply chain all the way down to the core and say, okay, where do I get my stuff? What is the risk in every supplier? We have to take the time. We have to invest because there's a huge difference between cost and price. And we have to invest in understanding where everything is coming from and how it gets to us and how it's put together and who is doing the put together. Because if you're using a, you know, if you're using a Mexican manufacturing facility, a pandemic hits and public transportation shuts down for three months. Well, whether your workforce is willing or not willing, they may not have the ability to get to their jobs. Well, what do you do then? Are you using a sole source? Are you using a sole source for production? Does it make sense to invest in another source? Are you using 80-20? How quickly can you ramp the 20 to 80? You know, if the place where the 80 is happening shuts down. So if you aren't doing that, if you aren't willing to do it, then you have to understand the risk that you're carrying every minute of every day as your business runs. You know, one of the things that's come up as a common point of conversation that I have as we're looking at third-party risk is relationships, not just relationships internally, because I know we've talked about that already, but the relationships with different third parties, transportation, logistics, ports, and of course, the actual supplier themselves. Talk a little bit about that for a moment. Do you agree with that perspective that relationships are key and a key part of the, the overall mitigating strategy, having those open and honest relationships? I'm a big believer in partnership with your suppliers. If you have a strong partnership with the suppliers in your supply chain, that when your emergency becomes their emergency or their emergency becomes your emergency, and they understand that you care about the long-term health and profitability of their company and not just the long-term health and profitability of yours, they are going to be more willing to work with you in times of crisis than someone that you squeeze every penny out of that you can. Yeah, you might be able to get a point or two of margin out of your, out of your suppliers, but is it worth it? Because you need people that when the chips are down, when the world is on fire, like it has been for the last almost two years now, they're like, Hey, we'll take a haircut if you'll meet us halfway. You know, anything to keep the trains running, anything to keep the product flowing, anything to keep the businesses afloat. So we don't have to one lay off which hurts everybody short, medium, and long-term, okay, or two, shut down, which becomes a crisis that has to be managed. The best way to avoid crisis with your suppliers 
is by partnering with them. From a process perspective, what do you think is the biggest challenge organizations have from learning from this, moving on, getting better, managing this risk more holistically or better than they have in the past? What's the thing holding people back the most from your perspective? It's always the same thing. They're not willing to address the thing that they're most afraid of. They're not willing to even you know, look at the business and say, we have some problems here. We need to invest or we need to address them or we need to, we need to work differently or think differently about how we're going to address our business long term. Because if we don't, we got a problem and they wait for crisis. I'd rather act in front of the crisis. So when the crisis inevitably happens, which it will, whether it's a tsunami, an earthquake, or in this case, a really, really long, you know, pandemic, that we have a plan in place that we know how we're going to execute, that our relationships are so strong with our suppliers that we even have a crisis plan in place because we know this is going to happen again. Or we're going to be stuck in a situation where a pandemic becomes endemic and we're going to have to live like this, you know, in some form or another forever, right? So how do we operate in that? That's a very strange place to be because the objective reality is that it affects every single part of our businesses. And that if we don't have a holistic view of how our businesses will react to it, then we're behind the eight ball before we even start. And you have to dedicate resources to it. You can't just say, okay, we're all going to be a tiger team on this. And it's like, well, I have a day job. Business risk, not just financial risk, right? But business risk has to be almost a board level investment. We need an executive leader with dedicated resources, time and team, and the authority to go in and not only identify problems, but fix them. Well, David, thank you. If any of our listeners wanted to to connect with you or reach out, um, is there a good way for them to reach you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter at David I. Landsman. I'm on LinkedIn. Also, you know, kind of look me up. I'm in the Atlanta area. So there's a couple of David Landsmans. I am not the former UK ambassador to Greece. He's the most famous David Landsman. But uh, you can get me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm, I'm readily available and always happy to help. Specific to this topic, there are four key takeaways that I'd like to mention. First, have a strong knowledge of your supply chain. Understand where there are true vulnerabilities within the overall value chain delivering products and services. Number two, understand the context of each third party. Understand the importance that each plays in that value chain. Third, look to decrease the complexity of supply chains. And that very well may be something that has to do with perhaps shortening supply chains or perhaps even finding sources of products and services that are nearer to the point of use. And then fourth, have contingencies when supply chains fail. And this includes everything from logistics to transportation to even raw materials. Because supply chains and the use of third parties is such an important issue when it comes to business continuity and resilience, consider it as part of your business case to justify further investment and resources into your program. Take a look at the show notes for a link to our business case template. Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Brian Zawada for this scenario's episode. To get more insights and resources, head over to castellonbc.com and follow along wherever you get your audio.